Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 25th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows better than to FDV up zombie planeswalkers. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. It is great to be back after a couple weeks of vacation. I hope you guys enjoyed Cliff in my stead. I'm sure he'll find his way over here again in the future when James eventually goes off on another surfing trip. Uh, (laughs) Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com, the manager collection. Track your specs and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, I got to ask, on your adventures in Europe, did you hit up any hobby shops? I found one. I have to tell you, when I was in Japan, you couldn't walk 10 feet without running into one. Uh, in Europe, I didn't see any naturally. I had to hunt one down. Um, I bought, you know, it, it was all uh, all Japanese, or I'm sorry, all um, Western European language packs, which is uh, worth less than English. So I just bought an Eternal Masters pack. Uh, I think I opened Call of the Skybreak, and I handed them to a <laughs> child walking by. <laughs> Not worth carrying back. Um, that sounds like the time where I, I walked into uh, a magic store in Istanbul um, and asked to see the foils binder, and it was full of nothing great, better than MP condition because uh, apparently nobody plays with sleeves, uh, which which really made that trip uh, less desirable than it could have been. Oh, I, uh, I, oh wait, I wanted to mention... Uh, I was purchasing my pack and my now fiance walked up to the counter and went, you know, he writes about magic. And aside from embarrassing me, uh, the clerk goes, Oh, what website? And she said, MTG price. And he's like, I've read that website before. So, you know, we've got, we've got readers across the world. That's pretty cool. Um, so break down the agenda for everybody this week. Sure. Uh, this week we have our four segments. Our first segment is top movers. This is where we're going to look at the cards that have seen the greatest rise in price over the last week. Uh, it looks a little paltry relative to the last few weeks and all the excitement you guys had while I was gone, but still several cards worth looking at. Uh, segment two is our cards to watch. This is where you and I are going to talk about some of the cards we have our eyes on as possible ways to profit. Uh, segment three is our metagame week in review. It looked like there was a WMCQs in Europe this past weekend. So we have several interesting decks that popped up uh, across Europe in those modern events. And finally, segment four is our topic of the week. This week, we're going to look at sealed product and uh, some of the intricacies of that particular market. Um, so uh, we'll jump right in here on the bottom of top movers. Uh, looks like we have Yavamaya Hollow. Uh, from Urza's Destiny. This is the land, uh, you may remember this, as the art depicts like a cartoonish-looking moose standing in a pond. Uh, came into the week at $16. Looks like it's currently about 23 That's good for about uh, just under 50% uh, increase in price. And uh, this is a reserve list card, which, you know, if you've been listening the last few weeks, you know, have been have been all over the place. Uh, so, you know, we're at 23 right now, and I wouldn't be surprised uh, if this shows up once or twice more. I don't know if this was fully bought out yet, or rather just people grabbing a couple of copies uh, before it does get bought out. Yeah, I mean, in January, this made it onto my reserve list, uh, targets list, um, and it was 
going for, at that point, I tracked about 70 or 80 copies between TCG, eBay, um, MGG price vendors, uh, and a couple other sources uh, here in Canada. So there's maybe like 80 to 100 copies online at that point, and I had it targeted to hit $20 within two years. And here we are um, just a few short months later with it uh, blowing past uh, my estimations. And I don't think it's going to hang out for very long uh, in the low 20s because, you know, six to 12 months out, it's probably a 30 to $40 card once the supply has truly dried up. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So uh, next on our list, we've got uh, an interesting modern uh, card showing a little bit of movement. Uh, Anger of the Gods foils from Theros um, seem to uh, have uh, disappeared as somebody made a move, um, going from about 8 or $9 to 13 for about a 45% gain. Um, you know, the fact that this card costs three or less and exiles creatures is uh, increasingly useful in a format um, that boasts uh, a plethora of value creatures and creatures that you don't want uh, popping back out of the graveyard. Yeah, you know, I think there was a brief period of time where people were playing Slagstorm instead, um, but Anger of the Gods showed up pretty quickly and took its spot uh, as that sort of that board clear that kind of transitions between your your one mana removal and uh, the full Wrath of Gods, which which tend to come online a little bit later and uh, don't have the Exile Clause. So I think we're going to see non-foil copies um, continue to drag in price for a long time. There's a lot more of those out there, and we would have to go probably, I would guess, at least two to three years without a reprint before we're really talking about the non-foil copies, but the foil copies will, uh, will stay strong until there's a reprinting on those. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things I noticed here was as I was trying to research this card, I, uh, I noticed that the market price that TCG Player is now displaying that shows kind of the average of the recent sales um, always seems to default to the non-foil copy. So you can't really get any background info on what the foils have been selling for. If anybody knows how to dig down that deep on TCG, uh, let me know if I'm missing something. Um, otherwise, TCG, uh, get your act together and make sure we can you know, see that data. Like- it's been like two or three weeks since I looked at the announcement. Uh, I just glanced at it the day it came out, but I think they said something about foils coming later, but not being ready yet or something like that. Fair enough. Uh, and the price trends aren't up there yet either, and we don't have any graphs uh, at present, uh, which is befuddling. So hopefully that will be corrected soon. Um, tell me about the next card on the list. Yeah, this is, this is uh, I'm glad to talk about this one. Uh, I actually wrote about this card this week. Uh, it is Matter Reshaper from Oath of the Gatewatch. Uh, started the week at about two and a quarter, and it's up to about three fifty right now. So a little over fifty percent gain so far. Uh, Matter Reshaper is really well positioned for the coming standard. Um, if you saw any of the modern, any of the Eldrazi decks across Standard, Modern, or Legacy over the uh, prior to Eldritch Moon, um, you know Matter Reshaper was was a standard part of that core. It was like uh, Matter Reshaper, Thought Not Seer, and Reality Smasher were your your core creatures, and then the rest of it, uh, there was some variability. And that was across all three formats. Well, now that's still legal and standard. Uh, we're still seeing Eldrazi and Modern Legacy, but now you're adding Emerge Creatures. And Emerge Creatures love to have sacrifice, to eat Matter Reshapers to get themselves into play. Um, it gives you a nice turn amount of casting cost to bring that to bring the Emerge cost down, and you get to draw a card off of it, so you're not actually losing that much. And if you ever flip something that's less than three mana... Um, I mean, it's like you didn't lose anything at all, and you got this humongous emerge creature to come out. Uh, so, I mean, it plays really well with this new emerge mechanic, which is also a very powerful mechanic. We're seeing nearly every emerge card looks like it may be playable and standard. And then on top of that, 
Um, you also have Eldritch Evolution, which may be the best card in Eldritch Moon. Uh, we'll find out over time, but that's also a very powerful looking card that loves a creature that wants to die. Um, so there's just a lot coming in Eldritch Moon that is positioning Matter Reshaper right now. So, you know, this is up to 350. I wrote that I wouldn't be surprised to see this pushing double digits. It's never going to be the star of the show in a deck, but it's going to be an excellent workhorse in a lot of different strategies. And I still have my suspicions that, um, you know, based on anecdotal evidence from uh, vendors that I, I uh, talked to uh, about uh, set sales volume, um, fairly frequently, as well as the way that Wizards worded their recent earnings uh, report earlier this week. Um, I, I'm convinced that uh, Oath of the Gatewatch didn't sell as much as it should have based on uh, Eldrazi Winter um, tempering people's willingness to buy packs past the first couple of weeks once we all assumed that uh, relevant cards in the set were going to be banned. And be- because of that, it's it's possible that a lot of these, like, uh, strong, unique uh, rares like Eldrazi Displacer and Matter Reshaper from Oath are going to be good long-term pickups when they're, uh, again, revisiting lows. Um, I think if you can get out on Reshaper somewhere around $4 and you got in around a dollar when it was at its you know bottom earlier this uh, late spring, early summer, um, you know, trade it out on Puka Trade for four and up into something you need, uh, that's going to be a good exit point. And, you know, as it gets closer to rotating next year, um, maybe you get another long-term shot at putting some copies away. Yeah, you know, for those of us that weren't lucky enough to get in smart enough, uh, wise enough to get in at a dollar, um, a little early to sell out at four, but uh, I, def- I do think this, this card um, benefits quite a bit from Eldritch Moon. So next on the list, we have Tolarian Academy, um, yet another reserve list card tumbling um, in the pile of dominoes that have fallen over the last few months. This is an Urza Saga land, and if it wasn't so broken, it's banned in practically every format. Um, it would already be multi-hundreds of dollars. I mean, it's it's more powerful than Gaia's Cradle, and yet far less expensive, just based on the fact that nobody's willing to let you play it at any table you step to. Um, this is the, the land that makes blue mana for every artifact you have in play. Um, you know, if you were going to have a contest for how broken you could make a card, that would be, uh, right up there in the top tier. And, uh, we've seen it and at, and yet, uh, we've, we've seen a move be made on it. Like the rest of the reserve list, uh, seems to be destined to, um, uh, to follow going from $30 to $50 for a $20 gain, uh, 67%, um, not clear to me that it's actually selling at that level. Uh, a quick look at uh, TCG's uh, market price suggests that it's going to take some more time to set up shop at the new plateau, but certainly not a time to be rushing to sell any of this stuff. Um, you're going to have a, a you might might take you a while, but if you've been holding them for uh, quite some time, sometime in the next six to twelve months, you might get a pretty nice exit. Sure. Uh, Talarian, you know, I've had Talarian Academy too, always hanging out in the back of my binder forever. This card has been so stagnant, but um, this reserve list, reserve list run is uh, really putting the pressure on these types of cards. It, it's, it's a shame. Well, I shouldn't say it's a shame this card's not playable in any format because it's ludicrous in any format that it's legal. But powerful card. Yeah, I mean, market uh, prices, market price still showing at twenty eight, so that's you know the average of what's been paid lately. But on the latest buyout, there's no copies below fifty dollars, so. Uh, we'll see if that plateau can hold, you know, anywhere over 40 still is solid uh, in the money for people that got in lower down. Yeah, I mean, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it tick down a little bit over time just because there's so few people that 
can do anything with this. Um, so, you know, this will, this will just kind of follow the trend of reserveless cards in general, but I don't think it will ever be the strongest gainer. Um, next up on our list is Mishra's Bauble. Uh, we're looking at, uh, this is from Cold Snap. We're looking at both the foil and the non-foil. I have the non-foil price listed right here. Uh, started the week at $11, uh, which you'll remember it got to on the back of Pat Chapin's deck in Modern when, uh, I think it was Fate Reforged? When Gurmog Angler came out, he played Mishra's Bobbles and really wanted to pour cards into his graveyard and drove Bobble from a dollar to, you know, 10 bucks. Now it's about 11, uh, but just finished the week off at $20 for about an 80% gain. Um, the reason for this gain is Death's Shadow Zoo. Uh, which had a really good uh, weekend over in Europe at those uh, modern uh, WMCQs. I found three copies that placed in the top eight, um, and all of them were running for Bobble. So, uh, you know, this is a uh, $20 uncommon now, and it will probably hang out up there because there's, like, no copies, and anyone that wants it wants four. Uh, eventually, they'll reprint it. You know, they're gonna. I don't know if they're going to put it in a commander or what, and the price will just uh, drop like a rock. So... Um, you know, I would sell any copies you had, and even personal play sets, if I wasn't playing with it, I would be reluctant to own any. I mean, of all the uncommons for us to have, like, picked, say, five years ago um, to hit $20, I don't think this could ever have made my list. Um, I've been trying to make this work in numerous casual decks for ages. Um, it always sort of does what I want it to, um, but I, I'm still stunned to see it anywhere near this level. Worth noting that the market price is still hovering around its original price pre-buyout, um, so it has yet to demonstrate that it can hold the new plateau, um, over 15, uh, towards 20, but, uh, you know, give it a few weeks and see where it settles. Okay. What's, uh, what's next for us, James? So I think, uh, we pronounce, uh, this young lady as Ishkana, the graph widow, um, out of Eldritch Moon. This is a, a mythic I did not see coming, um, as something people were going to spec on this hard this early. Um, moving from initial pricing around $4 up into the $11 to $12 range. Um, this is the Mythic Spider um, out of the new set. It's four and a green for a 3-5 reach. Um, it has Delirium. Uh, when you have Delirium uh, and it enters the battlefield, uh, you get three 1-2 green spider tokens that also have reach. And for six and a black, target opponent loses one life for each spider you control. So there's a little bit of demand here from the um, EDH crowd because the there, you can have a Tier 2, Tier 3 spider deck if you really want one now. Um, but I think people are specking the hardest on this based on its potential usefulness in Standard, where uh, early testing has shown the card to be much more powerful than originally anticipated. Yeah, this is another one that showed up in my article this week. I completely dismissed this as a mediocre commander card when I first looked at it. Um, then Ryan Bouchard, a uh, couple command uh, over from Brainstorm Brewery, was talking to me about it, and I was like, "Oh, you know, he raises a good, really good point. It's just it does everything you want against what the top two standard decks uh, might be. You know, it gives you a lot of reach bodies against spirits, and it can't be spell colored. And if you reflect your mage, it you just get more spiders. And against tokens, it gives you a lot of bodies. Uh, it gives you an, a long term ability to just drain people out of the game in a board stall, which you're likely to get to with four creatures. It's got five toughness, which is the magic number in the new standard. So it turns out that this is probably a standard plant that we all just missed at first glance because we just assumed it was a commander card. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it when great cards get undervalued, get underestimated early. Um, it gives me 
uh, hope that skill-based speculation is still possible in standard and modern. <laughs> Did you pick any up? <laughs> no, I, as I said, I missed this one completely. Um, but I'm happy to miss miss cards um, just so that uh, the demonstration of other people's early testing um, can prove f- fruitful and show that speculation is a real thing. I just wanted to point out that for our listeners, this is uh, an excellent example here is that, um, you know, a lot of people, Mish Ishkana, uh, James and I mostly included, uh, but that doesn't mean that you should definitely buy every single time. Um, there's always more money on the table, and you shouldn't feel bad about missing something because uh, if you ever buy in when you're not 100% certain, you are very likely to lose money in the long run. So don't don't feel bad about missing cards. It's, it's always prudent to not have been there and to be there at the wrong time. Absolutely. I mean, especially the sets are increasingly being spec'd out um, very early on. Um, lots of early pricing on Star City Games, which is usually the first vendor to post online, um, is getting pushed up high on on speculation before people even had a chance to test. There's just no way they've had a chance to test before those pri- some of those prices are popping. And you know, the series that I've been writing uh, for every set for the last year and a half or so, digging for dollars, which looks for undervalued cards early on in the set's release. Um, is likely to be fairly skeletal um, this time around because I just think almost all of the halfway decent to potentially excellent cards have been uh, identified early and are priced accordingly. And a lot of them are going to have to come down um, when they don't see early play for there to be a chance for us to get in for profit. So what what, what was our biggest mover this week? Yeah, our biggest mover was uh, Goblin King, the 8th edition foil. Started the week at $9. It is now about 50 bucks for 400 and some odd percent increase. Um, I am quite confident this is not because a Goblins list has taken over Modern and everyone wants to play the 8th edition ones. Uh, there was probably three copies of this card on TCG Player two weeks ago and somebody bought one of them um, and the price moved accordingly because they're just, you know, one guy had listened to this for 50 bucks and was never paying attention. Uh, so, you know, they're pretty much bought out right now. If you can grab them still in the $10 range, that's probably fine. Um, you know, the price will settle above $10, but a lot less than 50. Uh, so, you know, nothing, nothing too exciting here. We've seen this quite a bit. Well, I mean, this is, this is a great example of when you're researching, uh, foils and you want to reality check some of these big movers, guys, they, one of the things to look at is what the, uh, whether there are, you know, slightly worse conditions than near mint, uh, foils that had that they missed when they went to buy them out so for instance in this case the the lowest price near mint foil is 98 dollars. sure that's somebody fishing to see where they can set up shop um but the lightly played foil is nine dollars and 32 cents um so you know there's no evidence whatsoever that this card is actually at this price until we can see the market price um for foils on tcg um you know, it's worth looking at completed auctions on eBay, which will give you some sense of whether it can move um, anywhere near. In a card with a card like this that started in in and around ten dollars, um, for it to go to twenty and hold twenty would still be impressive. Um, I really can't see it holding a hundred; it's just not that kind of demand. No, and that's a good trick too that uh, I know not only do you and I use, but a lot of other writers use as well. Is um, when you're trying to kind of figure out how a card is moving and whether it's sort of people trying to make a move or if there's, if it's a little more organic is to check the played copies. Um, a lot of, if, if there's a lot of lightly played copies left close to the old price, it's people just picking up near mint copies to resell. If the lightly played copies are gone too, it's players are actually trying to get their hands on it so they can cast a spell. 
Uh, so, that, so that's a good point. It's a good way to check for that type of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I also wanted to point out to everybody that uh, the Volrath Stronghold Reserve List pick that we mentioned on show 23 uh, two weeks ago with Cliff, um, when I said it was draining out of the market fast, uh, certainly did. Uh, even the market price on that card is up to 32 or $33 on TCG, um, up from the 25 it was at when we called it. Um, the lowest uh, priced card uh, in near mint condition is at 40 and there's only six total copies between 40 and 48 currently on TCG, so reserve list continues to perform. Uh, why don't we move on to our cards to watch this week? What uh, What's your first pick uh, for the folks to be considering picking up this week, Travis? Sure. Uh, I'm going to start off this week with a card that uh, you can't buy at the price today, um, but I want you to keep an eye on it. That card is Voldaren Pariah. I got turned on to this by a friend who's involved in the upcoming Pro Tour, and it's looking pretty spicy. Um, you know, I kind of I paused on this when I was looking at the spoiler. I didn't know exactly what to think of it. Um, this is the one. It has a madness cost of triple black. And uh, when you sack three creatures, uh, it flips the Voldaren, Voldaren Pariah um, and then makes your opponent sack three creatures and ends up as a uh, like a flying 6-5 <laughs> colorless on the backside. <laughs> Um, again, right now, I think this is in like the three to four dollar range, uh, maybe maybe a little less than that, which is not ideal. Uh, but if we see copies of this get down into the dollar or sub one dollar range, I'm a lot more interested, especially in the around fifty cents, um, which I'm expecting. If this doesn't come out of the gate strong, a lot of these rares are going to crash pretty hard within the first week or two. Um, and you know, again, if we could see Pariah drop pretty rapidly to sub one dollar. But the nice thing about this card is that Vampires picked up a lot of tools. Um, making your opponent sack three creatures is very powerful, especially if they spent a lot more mana on their creatures than you did yours. Um, and the backside is really good in the new standard. It's colorless, so it doesn't die to ultimate price. It's a, got five toughness, which means it dodges Grasp of Darkness and Languish. It beats up Avacyn, it beats up Gisela. Uh, basically, the backside of this card is extremely difficult to deal with uh, with the tools that are available in standard right now. So I can't guarantee you this is going to go anywhere, and I can't guarantee you that it's ever going to be cheap enough to be worth buying into. Uh, but if we get down into the sub $1 range, I'll definitely be keeping my eyes on this, especially if we see some vampire decks at the fringes that are running this uh, as a playset. Yep, we're of like mind on this card. The uh, This was one of the ones I picked out when Cliff and I were talking a couple weeks ago about cards that are caught our eye in spoiler season. Um, not only is it a gorgeous foil, uh, I guarantee this, this foil is going to look stunning in person, especially the backside. Um, but it, you know, a, a card that is potentially that powerful that can come into play for just three mana um, uh, could certainly find legs. I haven't heard a lot of whispers about the Vampire deck being good enough for Standard, even with the new cards it got. Um, so it could it could be that that's incorrect, and we see Vampires pop up at the Pro Tour as kind of a surprise archetype. Or it could be that it misses out on the Pro Tour, and like you said, falls down towards a dollar, at which point uh, maybe it's time to start looking at it again. Okay. Uh, great. What's your first card, James? So... We're, we are definitely running short on reserve list cards that are worth chasing after. Um, but there's a couple more that have drained in supply but haven't uh, officially popped off yet um, that I'm going to highlight this week, uh, and it'll be close to the last of the list for me. Um, the first is Treachery. Uh, I have a confidence level of 8, as with most of the reserve list cards that are any good. 
Um, timeline short to mid, uh, you know, it could take a few months to set up shop with a new plateau or it could pop off tomorrow. Who knows? Um, but it's an Urza's Destiny card. If you've ever played it, um, in Magic Online Cube, you know, it's a very powerful, swingy, uh, card that can turn games around. Um, doesn't really show up, uh, in too many places, uh, in Constructed, but, uh, is the kind of card that shows up in cubes a lot. It shows up in occasional, uh, uh, EDH commander decks uh, of various flavors and it's currently available in the 15 or 16 dollar range um, there aren't very many copies left online at this point you know certainly less than 20 or 30 broadly available and in near mint anyway and I would say that it's a, a, a reasonable target to say that this card will hit 25 within the year um, and give you a nice little gain uh, if you can stock some copies away or if you've got some sitting in some decks um, definitely something you should consider uh, snapping up a few of the last copies of or maybe just pulling yours out of decks and keeping an eye on it as time marches on. I really like Treachery. Uh, you know, I wasn't really keeping an eye on much while I was gone, so, you know, during the reserve list buyouts, I, I just, I didn't look at anything. Um, but as soon as you put Treachery down and I looked, I was like, oh, that card is still in the 10 to $15 range. This is easily a $30 card, I think. Um there aren't that many copies out there. It's awesome in Commander if you're just playing it quote-unquote fair. Although I don't even know if just paying the face cost for this card and not untapping Broken Lands is, can even be considered fair. But uh, <laughs> exactly. it, it, does, it does a lot It does a lot in that format. Um, you know, half the time you just want the untapped lands. You don't even, the creature you get is just a bonus. Uh, it's a really great card. It's You're not going to see anything better than this, like ever printed for what it does. So... Uh, I, I totally think this is a great buy-in. Yeah, I mean, I'm specifically um, to throw some business uh, the way of this particular store. I've got my eye on MTG deals having you know nine near mint copies. Um, the next closest uh, available inventory is three or four from anybody else, and they want fourteen for them at seventy-five cent shipping. I mean, that seems like a slam dunk. Just snap all those off and and tuck them away for six to twelve months and circle back and see where things are at. I like it. I like it. All right, so what's next on your list this week? Uh, well, this week, uh, my next card is um, Eldrazi Mimic. Uh, you know, little, little kid kid sister, kid brother, younger child of Matter Reshaper. Uh, I'm a little less confident on this. I'm, I'm like at a six on this one. This is a short to mid pickup. It's from Oath of the Gatewatch. But they're like 50 cents right now. El, you know, Eldrazi Mimic. Um, is that two mana two one that becomes a copy or gains the power and toughness of the last colorless creature or Eldrazi to come into play under your control? Um, and you know we're seeing Matter Reshaper in the three to four dollar range. Thought Not Seer is is up quite a bit higher than that. Reality Smashers two to three dollars. Uh, and Mimic has been um, almost as common as the other cards are. Not quite as much, especially in formats where Ivugan is banned. Uh, but like Matter Reshaper, it benefits a lot from the uh, existence of these new emerge creatures because now you're playing um reality smasher was usually the top of your eldrazi curve you got a five five and that's what you had four reality smashers and that's what mimic was doing well now you can have four reality smashers and you can have uh descended mind benders you can have elder deep fiends you can have whatever um which gives you a lot more eldrazi fat to turn the mimic into and you can cast them uh at reasonable timetables with the emerge cost um, so it just it seems like Mimic is getting a lot of cards entering the format that can power it up. Uh, you know, at at a dollar fifty, I would not go anywhere near this, but at fifty cents, that's very cheap. 
I think we could see these in the, you know, two to five dollar range, maybe um, if things shake out for it, which, uh, you know, I can't guarantee you that you're really going to make a lot of money trying to resell these on TCG player. Um, but they would be really good to probably like Puka, uh, especially if you can pick them up on Puka for really cheap and then out them for, you know, five, four or five, six times as many points down the road. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting little card. Definitely seems like it's got a lot. Uh, it's gaining a lot as we go forward. Uh, so just something to keep your eye on. Yeah, I mean, I've got a few additional reasons to add uh, fuel to that fire. Um, first, Cliff picked it in show 21 as a foil, um, saying that they're available around 4 or $5 and he expected them to hit 10 um, And one of the reasons I can buy that is that there's a couple of guys here in Toronto that have been running around the, you know, you know the fairly competitive uh, legacy circuit in town. Um, we've got several hundred players here that are pretty serious about legacy. And, you know, face-to-face games and, and 401 games are running, you know, 100-person legacy tournaments semi-regularly. And uh, one of the guys that uh, works at face-to-face has been running an Eldrazi Mimic Phyrexian Dreadnought deck um, that we were both kind of driving towards at one point. Mine was much more ludicrous than his. I was running things like Stifle um, to counter the trigger. He was just using it as a potential uh, blowout card where he would just accept that it could potentially be a dead card because he would have so much else going on. And then you, you slap that thing down and turn your Mimic into a 12-12, and it's just ridiculous. Um, the, so, I mean, it's, it's a, and he's won multiple tournaments. It's, it's a legit legacy card that um, you know, hasn't caught on because it seems like it, it's just too inconsistent um, to draw it dead inside the rest of that deck shell. But... I love the fact that it has open-ended synergy. Even if it never sees mainstream play or acceptance as part of that shell, um, the fact that it reacts to any colorless creature coming into play, artifact or otherwise, means that multiple things can be printed down the road that incidentally make this card crazy. Um, and it's, it, it doesn't necessarily just need to be something that it, you know, it gets bigger on attacks. It can be, uh, it gets bigger and some kind of fling effect lets you deal uh, a massive amount of damage. So, uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, 50 cents is certainly a compelling price point for any potentially playable rare down the road. Uh, it's hard to get much cheaper than that. Um, and it's the kind of price point where throwing, you know, 20, 30, 40 copies of this into a, a deck box and then let it sitting on them for a few years starts to seem pretty compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. What's your next card? Uh, so my last one this week is the other reserve list card I've had my eye on, which is Time Spiral. Um, another card that, like Treachery, is starting to bleed out in terms of inventory. Um, one of the things I like here is that it's only maybe 30 or 40 copies away from drying up. You can get it as low as $23, but pretty quickly you run out of options below $30. Um, and the market price is already showing at $24 when I had my eye on it uh, several months ago in and around uh, like 18 or 19 so the motion has been kind of slow but steady, um, and it's not going to take too much uh, to tip it over. You know, a few thousand dollars, uh, maybe not even that much. It might be as low as, you know, 1200 or 1500 could clean up most of the rest of the copies. And if somebody does that, certainly not going to be disappointed to be sitting on, you know, two or four or eight copies of this that you stashed away. Um, just seems like another strong card. And one of the things I like about this versus something like Treachery is that um, there is some outsider demand and legacy for this. I mean, High Tide runs this as a four of, um, and occasionally High Tide decks make appearances at tournaments. So, um, you know, that 
kind of, you know, low level latent demand in a real deck that is, you know, at least here too, um, you know, puts an under uh, belly of support on the price uh, if it sets up shop at a new plateau. Yeah, I, Time Spiral is another one of these reserveless cards. It's kind of slipped under the radar while everything else is going nutty and it's actually playable involved in that legacy deck. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I like a treachery a little bit more, but it still seems like it definitely has uh, real life left in it. And, and because they're both, you know, part of the utterly broken untap your lands mechanic, um, they do have uh, the the power quotient and iconic status going for them. So, Travis, tell me about your last pick this week. Sure. My last card is uh, is going to be similar to the first one. It's uh, Distended Mindbender. Um, uh, I really like this card. The real question is whether or not it will get cheap enough to be worth buying into. Uh, Distended Mindbender, again, is from Eldritch Moon. Uh, this is the Black Emerge Eldrazi. It's the one that when it comes in, when you cast it, you get to exile two cards from your opponent's hand. Uh, one three and under and the other one four and up monocost um i think this this might be better than elder deep fiend which i think is the other emerge card that's getting a little bit more airtime right now but that one seems really obvious especially with the uh, rise of spirits uh whereas distended mind bender you know uh there's no major no, excuse me no no black deck really sort of controlling uh, it hasn't been in standard for for you know a couple months now, so it's a little less obvious where Distended Mindbender goes. But uh, this effect is really powerful, especially if you get any value off the creature you sack. It essentially makes this a three for one, um, and and I just really like the power level there. I could even see this breaking into modern possibly. Um, I mean, you just hit all sorts of stuff. I mean, standard you can take out some of these cast it, take out the take the Reflector Mage and the Collected Company out of their hand, or the Reflector Mage and the Avacyn or uh, anything along that nature just seems seems back-breaking to hit two very strong cards out of your opponent's hand with this. Um, so again, I think right now he's probably around 3 or $4, which is uh, too rich for my blood on this, but uh, close to a dollar, maybe a little under a dollar, and I'd be happy to pick this up. We may not see it within the first month of release, but that's fine. There's plenty of time for Descended Mindbender to become a card. Remember, we've got, you know, it's coming out now, but you've got, I think, like 14 months that this is legal and standard, so... Uh, who knows what things will look like down the road. Um, this effect could get very powerful very quickly, depending on what else gets printed, if it doesn't break out uh, sooner than that. Yeah, and I expect to see some value creatures out of Kaladesh um, that are artifacts that come into play and drop to uh, Thopter tokens. Um, that just seems like a natural. And, yeah. you, know, you know, if they if they print a 1-1 a one, one for 4 um, that drops a couple of thopters or something on the way in, uh, you'll be happy to emerge out of that. I'm not clear on whether, you know, I haven't done all of the testing I've wanted to do yet for standard. So I'm not clear on whether Elder Deep Fiend or Mindbender or maybe Decimator of the Provinces is going to end up being the most dominant emerge card. But I can tell you that all three of those cards are much more powerful than any of us thought at first glance. Um, you know, this potential three for one off the Mindbender is crazy. Um, the dream scenario that everybody talks about is always to do with matter reshaper, generally speaking, um, where, you know, you're, you're playing this eight, uh, seven casting cost thing for four, um, following up on your matter reshaper on three. I mean, that's just gross. Um, to be able to hit a collected company and a company and a creature, or like you said, an Avacyn and a, and a tireless tracker or something. And those, those are dream scenarios that are, that are just, are not magical Christmas land. Like that, that play, arc um is very feasible 
what remains to be seen is how many emerge creatures you can play in one deck and still be consistent. Um, but we have a ton of value creatures in standard right now, much more than, than on, on average. And so we've definitely been set up for the emerge creatures to be dominant. Um, and I'm dying to see how the pro tour plays out and which of these come to the forefront. Yeah. And that's a really good point too. There are two really good points. The first is that, um, you know, Kaladesh may bring us more creatures like Pia and Kier, Key and Peel, Key and Pure, whatever. <laughs> yeah, Key so and Peel. That one card, yeah, Key and Peel, the, the, it's four mana, and you get three bodies, so when you sack that to emerge, you're getting, you still have two flying tokens left, um, and you're getting a pretty high mana cost, so any effect like that is really going to help emerge. Uh, and the other point um, was, was I agree, we, we don't know what the how many emerge creatures you can shove into a deck yet. Time will tell, um, and that's something I think that you'd kind of just have to play the deck and figure out uh, how comfortable you are with that. But uh, that'll depend on what type of fodder there is out there for these types of cards. So I don't know, maybe maybe standard decks will only be able to support two to three of them, but I'm willing to bet uh, that we, that will end up not being the case. All right, so moving on from our uh, cards to watch this week, let's talk about uh, the metagame we can review. Um, break down the tournaments that went down over the last week or so and uh, the stuff that caught your eye, Travis. Yeah, well, like I said, this weekend was uh, WMCQ weekend over in Europe. So I'm looking at WMCQs. I, I'm sorry, I should I should take that back. It's more than just Europe. I'm looking at Australia, Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, South Korea, Japan, and the Philippines, I think, are the ones that I pulled up. And I think there were a couple more, too, but, I mean, I didn't pull all of them up. Um, but there's a, a handful of very unique decks that showed up here. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned that Death, Death Shadow, the Shadow Zoo showed up um, three places at one. One of them uh, took second and like uh, fifth place in two others. Um, you, you know, we're fairly familiar with the list by now. They all seem very stock uh, involved team or battle rage and, and that type of thing on your Death Shadows. And, you know, the cards to note there are the Death Shadow itself and uh, Mishra's Bobble. We already saw Mishra's Bobble explode. Um, and Death Shadow so far, I mean, I'm going to look it up right now because I didn't think to do it before, but it looks like the price is still in the yeah, five, five to seven dollar range. Yeah, five to yeah. seven dollar range. So there's definitely life total in this one. Um, I mean, you would have been much happier to buy these at like the two or three dollars. They were quite a while ago, but, uh, you know, still a little, still a little left there. Um, the one other deck I want to mention really quick before I hand it over to James is uh, the one that won uh, Australia. And this is a Restore Balance deck. And uh, I have a stack of about 100 Restore Balances next to me. So I was very excited to see this <laughs> see this take first at a WMCQ. Um, it looks to be a fairly standard list. Uh, it's not doing anything I haven't seen before, really. You know, it's playing the Four Greater Gargadon, um, the Rift Wings, assuming Spirit Guides, the Cascade Spells. Um, but I, I will say what this adds that other versions haven't had is Four Nahiri the Harbinger, uh, which seems pretty solid in this deck. Uh, so, you know, will that be what makes Restore Balance playable? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But this, you know, this Ryan Cubit fellow from Australia certainly seems to have gotten there with Nahiri. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm excited to see where that goes. Uh, Restore Balance is still really cheap. Like I said, I have a lot of copies. So, uh, you know, if I'm telling you to go buy it, yeah, well, yeah, I have a vested interest in it. But, you know, it is still very cheap. So if you are a believer in this deck, I think there are still plenty of copies out there to get your hands on because... As a time spiral rare, if this deck takes off, uh, this is a fifteen to twenty dollar card. I mean, despite Death Shadow already spiking once this year, it definitely has my attention. 
there are very few copies left under $7, and I could see this card posting up at 15 if it puts up a couple more big results. It has already top-aided multiple times this year uh, at varying levels of competitiveness, and they're, they're, the inventory is, is reasonably deep uh, at present, given uh, how old the card is. Um, you know, I guess a lot of these got dragged out of uh, bulk boxes um, and the backs of binders and stores and so forth when it first made its first push. Um, but if the deck gets much more popular, the fact that it's the centerpiece four of in the deck could easily drag it up to a new plateau. Um, and it's probably not going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, a, a couple of more big performances and we might see the tipping point take place. Um, you know, Restore Balance is interesting. The other deck that really caught my eye um, that was highlighted on Star City Games today was a four-color human deck um, using Collected Company that was played by Matsumura Toshikazu uh, to a fifth-place finish at a World Magic Cup qualifier. And this was a, a humans port um, in Modern where, you know, a couple of the cards really caught my eye. I mean, it's got the Mayor of Averbrook, Champion of the Parish, Thalia's Lieutenant. You know, Thalia's Lieutenant was a foil I called a couple months back, uh, saying that, you know, this this is going to be, if, if a human's deck can be played in modern, this is going to be a centerpiece. Um, and, and in this build, he he throws in a couple of interesting humans, uh, two copies of Jace Friend's Prodigy, um, you know, to give your, give yourself a little reach and to be able to reuse your eight instants. You have four collective company and four path to exile as your only non-creature spells. Um, two Thalia Garden of Thraben, as well as, some um, uh, four copies of, Ref- uh, uh, Reflector Mage, um, to give you some game against various decks. And then a copy of Meddling Mage with another Meddling Mage in the sideboard, um, to try to shut down some of the more combo oriented decks. A couple of the cards really blew my mind. I mean, I would never, ha- I didn't even realize Mantis Rider was a human. And this deck's running uh, a red splash off of uh, a stomping ground and a sacred foundry just to get uh, some damage through in the air. Um, it is definitely a pretty sexy opener to go champion of the parish into Thalia's lieutenant and then drop a Mantis Rider. Um, that's, that's a very explosive, aggressive start, uh, even in modern. And, you know, they're backing it up with four Noble Hierarch and two Avacyn's Pilgrim to give them some uh, early acceleration. Um, definitely a deck I'm going to be sleeping up and testing in my local meta. That one was really cool. I missed that one in when I did my first pass here. Uh, in these tribal decks in modern, um, humans and slippers specifically, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, after they printed Cavern of Souls, all got a little more interesting. And then they printed My Confluence, which meant five-color builds were now possible because there were so many cards like that. So um, I'm not surprised to see this pop up. Oh, and Collective Company, too, helps these tribal strategies as well that are playing trying to play a lot of colors because um, no matter what tribe you're in, it gives you uh, a lot of value with that card. So uh, very curious to see this pop up. The Manus Rider, I remember noticing that that was human when somebody else posted a list similar to this. And it's like, huh. Very interesting. So um, that, that is a yeah. cool list. I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the Caverns, Cavern of Souls is, is the enabler here because it gives you game against the counter spell decks and Collected Company giving you that mid to late game top deck reach where, you know, if they blow you out with an anger of the gods early or something, you have the ability to get some relevant bodies back on board and start rebuilding. Um, just, a, 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 you know, the kind of aggressive deck that play has a little bit more play to it than something like... Uh, a zoo, um, or even, you know, death shadow aggro. Um, just, I, I love seeing new flavors, uh, of existing concepts or archetypes show up in modern because it really 
underscores the the potential for innovation in that format. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Um, the other deck that popped up in these uh, these WMCQs was Dredge. Um, you know, we've all seen various types of Dredge, but uh, again, there were three Dredge took three places across a handful of these events that I looked. Um, and this build is a little different than stuff we've seen in the past. It involves Insolent Neonate, that one-drop vampire. Um, it's uh, sort of like a hapless researcher a little bit. Uh, there's Prize Amalgam showing up in these decks. Um, this deck even uses Shriekhorn, which is a common artifact from Mirrodin Besiege. Very, very interesting. So, um, you know, Dredge is still floating around out there, and there's various builds of it existing. I see some of them. One of them was playing four Gemstone Mine, um, so there's definitely uh, room for some profit, as well as Grave Troll. Grave Troll has since, uh, after got unbanned, the price sunk on that guy by quite a bit. And it's, it's pretty cheap these days, but a real dredge deck coming to the front of the format would definitely drive Grave Troll nuts. So um, it looks like nobody's figured out what the dredge list is supposed to look like yet. Uh, but it, the strategy seems to have some legs now with uh, Insolent Neonate um, and possibly Prize Amalgam. So uh, a, r a rich vein there, a rich vein there if you're paying attention. Yeah, exactly. All right, we're going to move on to our fourth segment. Uh, our topic of the week this week is a, a discussion about the the state of investing in sealed product uh, for Magic the Gathering. Um, just wanted to give you guys uh, an overview of you know where things are at on that. Um, have you spent? Have you put a lot of money into sealed product over the years, Travis? Uh, I've mostly avoided it. Uh, I own some. I, I bought some Modern Masters originally. Um, I don't think I have any Modern Masters too. Um, I picked up a handful of Eternal Masters boxes, uh, a couple English, a couple Japanese. Um, but other than that, I've avoided the sets. Uh, you know, the last one that was really profitable was Innistrad. Um, and it just seems like they've been less and less profitable since then with a few, very few exclusions to that. Uh, so, you know, I have I have some money in it because some of the boxes I'm holding are a little pricier. But in terms of quantity, no, I'm very low on how many I have purchased. Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've definitely stashed away... Um, a few boxes from most sets, um, starting around Return to Ravnica, um, which was pretty much the exact wrong time to be starting doing that. And uh, after I did my article last year comparing the uh, the gains on booster boxes versus fat packs, um, the stats proved out that fat packs were were doing better than booster boxes on average. And I switched to trying to get a hold of um, pre-release tournament packs and fat packs um, on the basis that their price point being lower uh, opens them up to a wider market of demand. Um, just general retail theory um, tends to suggest that a cheaper uh, product is going to be easier to move than a more expensive one. Um, they're also more collectible in general, um, they're both, both because there's a perception that uh, pre-release packs and fat packs might be seeded um, with better cards since they typically are sold towards the start of a set's release. It's in Wizards' best interest to have people reporting really good uh, results from opening those, um, even though it's entirely possible that that is largely just anecdotal um, evidence um, or that they're, the way that they're collated uh, results in higher variance. And so there are you know, more stories, uh, good stories, and most people that suffer a bad beat just don't make a lot of noise. 
Um, nevertheless, the uh, the gains on fat packs are, are also supported from the collector viewpoint because both the deck boxes themselves, uh, fat pack boxes, and the dice that come with them are collectibles that um, have been in demand for, for several years and are likely to, to continue to be so, especially for particularly iconic sets. Um, one of the things that I've noticed uh, over time is that uh, you know, since steering away from buying just random booster boxes, um, which tend to, which seems since, uh, you know, around Innistrad through to maybe 2012, we have uh, a generally accepted period of growth in Magic where we might have added something like 30 to 40 percent to the player base. So coming out of the last recession, um, Magic takes off for a few years and um, we get to the, the current level of sales. Um, boxes feel like they've been overproduced coming out of that era or in response to that growth period. Um, it's pretty clear based on recent um, investor info pushed out by Hasbro that Magic has more or less flatlined on the player growth front and that most of the earnings gains, which are you know maybe single digit, are largely attributable to them selling us more product per year. And if you look at the number of sets that we're getting and the steering away from core sets, um, the adding of additional sets in the summer period, you can see um, the moves that they're making that reflect that, that they, they're trying to get the ARPU, the average revenue per user, um, up to a higher level to uh, so that they can continue to show financial growth even though we don't have player growth um, or very marginal player growth. Um, and so one of the things I've noticed is that um, uh, foreign booster boxes will tend to give you a, a better result than uh, English booster boxes. There's just a ton of the English product around, whereas the foreign product is generally offered to LGSs in their uh, first order from Wizards and, and then never again. And so some of the more hard-to-find or higher-demand languages like Korean and Russian, um, especially if you're dealing with, uh, I've noticed vendors that are kind of on the interior in the in the Midwest of either the U.S. or Canada anyway, um, uh, foreign languages tend to be in lower demand than they are on the coasts. Um, and as a result, I've been able to get my hands on Russian boxes of things like Khans of Tarkir uh, in and around, say, $90, $95 box, and, you know, looking at results on eBay um, just recently, there are, you know, Russian boxes of cons going for 180 or so. So that's a very nice return in a couple of years on a set that in English uh, is, is not making people as much money. Um, and that would be one of the better ones um, on the English side. Uh, and this is comparing to, say, you know, Innistrad, the last, like you said, exciting box um, that's worth almost, you know, 275 280 or something um, that you could have gone in at. Uh, in on it at 90 uh, and be doubling up. So what about commander product or like FTV product? Have you had any success with that? Yeah. Uh, hold on. Before, before we get there, I just want to swing back around the one point really quick, uh, just on the fat pack growth is, it's very curious to me because I imagine there are kind of these two markets is you have people who want to buy fat packs because they're collectible. They've decided they want to buy a couple packs of an old set. Uh, kind of, it's, it's exciting, they get to open some cool cards, whatever. Uh, so you have those types of people who buy in fat packs, but they're just going to crack every single one of those packs. Like, there's only, what, eight or ten of them in a box. You can't do a lot with them other than just open them. Uh, and then you have this other market that would be buying old sets to draft, or at least would want to get their hands on the old cards and have some excitement with it and figure they might as well buy a, uh, a set 
if they're going to buy it, they should just buy a box to draft with their friends, and then that's the way that they open the product. So it's uh, it's interesting to me that fat packs would rise, and that the market for that sort of collectible nature of the fat pack is greater than the people who would just buy a box and, to draft it, and you know, kind of open their product in that methodology. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think that the you know the price point um, has a lot to do with it. A booster box is going to be somewhere in the you know eighty to hundred dollar range. Uh, a fat back pack might end up in the you know forty to sixty dollar range, and it's just more of a, a a likely impulse purchase. It's got those the extra collectibles that you don't necessarily get from the booster box. Um, and, I, and I'm not even convinced. Like, there's been a lot of like, there's a, we always reference this concept of the people going out and buying a box to draft with their friends. I'm not convinced that happens very much anymore. I, I think that the density, as Wizards has increased the product density, like the um, decreased the uh, the length of time between uh, major product releases, there really isn't that much downtime where you kind of look around and try to figure out how to, um, you know, get something sexy going on a Friday night. You with the you know level of uh, play going on at you know a good uh, a, a busy LGS. Plus all the products that are coming out, you've always got something to spend your money on that doesn't require you, you know, trying to dig out a booster box from four years ago. So I really question how much of that actually goes on. Um, and I think that impulse purchases via platforms like eBay is really one of the primary uh, uh, ways that you know these products get outed over time. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that you're it's you're more successful with things like a Russian box of of uh, you know Battle for Zen uh, Constantar Kier, for instance is that you have the collectors that are after that stuff and the total volume that makes its way to North America is just so much less. Like we were talking um, before the cast about how you had picked up some boxes of Japanese Eternal Masters at a very good price. And I had suggested that I thought that there might not be any more than, say, 500 boxes available in North America total. Um, I have no way to prove that number. But just from how hard it has been to get my hands on some, and considering the fact that there was no GPs to support uh, judges getting their hands on those boxes and then needing to out them online, the fact that the the dealers in Japan tend to be pretty scrupulous about not selling online, um, leads me to believe that most of that product is being purchased and opened in Japan. Um, and I'm just not hearing a lot of stories of people being able to stash away more than a small handful of those boxes, uh, which leads me to believe that if there's no Eternal Masters announcement, say, in two years, and they leave that one alone for a while, that those boxes could be, you know, future thousand dollar collectibles. You, I think you hit a, upon a really good point in there. Um, and it's this idea of the person buying the box to draft, which is what, you know, we've always kind of, uh, kind of figured it, it collectively. It's sort of how we think about selling sealed product, but you know, you look back at the last, you know, whatever, six, seven years, uh, Innistrad was the last, set to really do well and that coincided with a, a great growth in player base uh, but it was also a fantastic draft format and people remember that as being a fantastic draft format and people still talk about that uh and i don't think there's been a draft format that compares to that um since innistrad and and i don't really i'm not a draft aficionado i, I can only go on what I hear and what my friends tell me who are really big into drafting, but um, they all still speak highly of Innistrad and nothing that's come out since has really tickled their, tickled them in the way that Innistrad did, which might, you know, the, which, which kind of tells us something is that, um, you know, it has to be a really, really good draft format for people to actually want to buy this box to draft. And even then, I don't know how much that happens. So I think that's part of the reason that we've seen so many of these boxes not moving, whereas fat packs, 
which cater to a very different market, which is like you said, this sort of more casual impulse buy that's a cool thing purchase, um, does much better because the, the market there is much more robust. So, um, you know, this, this concept that we're all walking around with that, you know, boxes get sold in order for people to draft, uh, maybe archaic or, or just flat out wrong. And again, that's an, another good point in there too, is that there's so much product out there now um, that you, there is no dearth of draft formats, right? There's no shortage of product to buy to go draft. There's always something, if not new in the store, um, you're not far away from something new. So you don't really have to dig back for boxes, uh, you know, to go to go draft something different. You know, there's always something right around the corner. Um, so it might, might require a change in the kind of the way we think about this. Uh, as for your question, um, Commander product, uh, <laughs> I think I have a... Uh, what is that one that Kali... Here, hold on. Saying? I'm just going to cut you off there because I've got a relevant point and I'm just going to segue oh, back to your commander. Sure, sure. So, yeah. So the thing is about, uh, you know, I think one of the driving factors in um, why, aside from just being generally overprinted versus the potential growth curve they were looking at, um, one of the other factors that affects the value of booster boxes is that if you look back at something like Future Sight, um, you know, one of the most profitable um, boxes and collections of cards to have held any time in the last 10, 15 years. Um, cards from that era were left alone without a reprint for a very long time um, because extended was not nearly as popular as modern is now as a general percentage of the population of competitive players that were pursuing it um, on a week-to-week basis. And the commitment to modern as a format and the resulting, uh, you know, increase in reprints where we get two or three relevant cards every block or so, um, as well as the printing of the modern master sets and cards being stuffed in, you know, supplementary products here and there has, has led to a situation where, you know, unlike Future Sight, where a lot of those cards, um, you know, took 10 years to get a reprint or in some cases still have not seen a reprint, um, most of the recent sets, people figure you've got about five years for the, for the card to pop. And then, you know, why would you go back and buy a box of, say, you know, Return to Ravnica if any relevant card from it could show up in Modern Masters 2017 next summer? Um, you know, it's really, you know, those boxes have gone nowhere. The, when I did my, you know, uh, checked my numbers on fat packs versus booster boxes and, and one of the, you know, looking at Return to Ravnica on that list, Return to Ravnica was like negative 4% on the cost of a booster box. And they're still available for under 100 bucks. Um, whereas the fat packs had advanced, you know, 30% just because there's nowhere near as many fat packs printed as there are booster boxes. Fat packs are, you know, a first month of, you know, past release kind of product, whereas booster boxes need to last for as long as they are legal in the format and stores will keep reordering them so long as they're selling because the cards are necessary for standard. So, I mean, there's a lot of these factors that come together to um, drive attention away from you know, recently printed booster boxes that are, say, two to five years old, um, you know, the threat of reprint, the lack of collectability, um, the price point, uh, and all of it leads me to believe that, you know, especially products like Japanese Eternal Masters, um, you know, Russian or Korean boxes of especially good sets that have a lot of uh, long-term cards like Fetchlands or other modern and legacy staples um, are really where you want to be. Um, so so let, let's segue back to Commander. What were you saying about what whether you'd put money in there? Uh, well, I, I have like the one, I want to say Heavenly Fury or something like that. Uh, the one that Kalia came in. I bought one of those. I tried to buy the one that Skim Genus came in and they sent me the wrong one by mistake. And I ended up with the Kalia one and it worked out very well for me. 
That's the only time Commander product has ever gone well for me. I ended up with like, I think I had two or three Commander's Arsenal at the time that it came out. Um, I picked them up around $100. I think they were selling for $130. People expected the price to go north of that. They kind of slowly moved up. Then several cards in the set all spiked in price. Um, the Kalia, the Commander's Arsenal Kalia, the Sylvan Library, and I bought several more Commander's Arsenals, but the price has deflated pretty severely since then. And uh, we've now seen like, I think like half of that set has been judge foiled at this point. Uh, so I am definitely underwater on those Commander's Arsenals, which has burned me completely on all Commander product at this point. Um, I just, just not even worth it for me because, you know, I don't think any of them have really done that great aside from like the initial run. Um, and even the ultra collectible commander's arsenal seems to have just been hammered by terrible foiling. Uh, and, uh, all of the foils getting reprinted, uh, a couple of years later. Yeah. I mean, wizards used to, I mean, that first set of commander decks was underprinted versus current interest in the format. Commander has grown a lot since 2010 or 2011, whenever those came out. Um, and, you know, that Heavenly Inferno deck was the kind of thing that was just sitting on the shelf for ages at Walmarts all over the, the country um, and now goes for about 150 bucks. So one of the keys here is to look for low supply. Um, if you're going to invest in sealed product, don't be doing that on something that you can get from almost anywhere. Um, look for products that are, uh, you know, that just there aren't that much of it around. Um, when it's initially released. I mean, Eternal Masters, I wasn't sure was going to be a moneymaker, but now that I've seen the actual supply profile, even for the English boxes, um, I don't think that we're going to get from 240 to 400 in a hurry, but I think that we can easily get from 240 to, say, 300 or 325 within the next year. Um, and the longer they go without uh, announcing another Eternal Masters set, uh, the better those boxes are going to look. Um, the number of cards that are of interest to Commander and Cube, especially in that set, and the quality of the art um, and the number of foils that appeared for the first time. Um, the fact that the Force of Will seems to be the preferred one. A lot of people are trading out of their old forces into the new forces because the Therese Nielsen artist is so sweet. Um, all leads to me to believe that those boxes are a very safe bet. Um, so I think if I was to cap it off, I would say um, sealed products should not be about grabbing you know, one of everything or a case of everything and just assuming it's going to go up. Uh, ignore that new guy on YouTube that is showing you, um, you know, backgrounds built out of 200 boxes of everything. Um, you really want to be selective and um, you've got to be particular. And in the case of things like, you know, Eternal Masters Japanese, which I think is much more exciting than English, um, both Travis and I have, you know, done the legwork to track those down um, at a reasonable price. And you can't just assume that you're going to log on to eBay and, and buy something because anything that's worth buying, um, is typically going to be something you're going to have to hunt around for. You're going to ne need to network. You're going to need to make some contacts overseas. Um, you know, take the extra steps um, necessary to make sure that you've got a hookup somebody else doesn't have, and you may find yourself in a sweeter position. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pain in the butt to track these down, and uh, you're. It, I'm fortunate enough to know somebody. Uh, not everybody's going to be in that position, and if you're not. Uh, if you have somebody that can help you out, awesome. Uh, if not, you know, don't kill yourself over it. There's other places to put your money anyways. There's always a uh, always another opportunity around the corner when it comes to magic finance. Fair enough. So that's a wrap for this week, folks. Uh, folk, uh, Travis, where can people find you online? Uh, I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, uh, B-U-M-P-I-N. I am also right every Wednesday on mtgprice.com. Uh, how about yourself? 
You guys can still find me on, on Twitter at MGG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, I was glad, good to be back. Glad uh, glad to get back to the grind after after a little while away. And I have an awesome new microphone on my desk that I could not get working for tonight, but hopefully next week I'll have some higher quality audio for everybody. So you can hear my lovely dulcet tones uh, without so much noise. <laughs> Sounds good. So we'll see everybody next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.